This is Aliens and Artists, part two of our conversation with Gordon White. In this episode, Gordon discusses how to protect your home from unwanted contact by turning it into a human dwelling. Also, the possibility that nuclear weapons were detonated on Mars half a billion years ago. But first, we explore the difference between technological and spiritual advancement and where we may stand in relation to the others spiritually and ethically. So I'm pretty Valayan when it comes to the, the, the part of the food pyramid that we might consider actual aliens, right? So, and because people miss this in, in his work, which is he emphatically says there is a technology behind it. So even though he, you know, he's the best at doing the historical comparisons with um, fairies in Brittany and, and obviously Magonia, most famously, all that kind of like historical encounters around the world with stuff that looks like this. He's, he's quite upfront that it's a technology. And it has as its goal, interestingly, because again, this comes back to the theory of mind stuff. If you think thoughts are real, then all of a sudden it makes perfect sense that for whatever reason, there are entities that have a, a kind of technology moving human culture in a certain direction that may or may not be in our benefit. And I wrote a whole book about that. So I'm pretty Valayan when it comes to the actual technology. Now, interestingly, as to whether or not they're more advanced than us, Given that I am 90% confident that something like electrogravitic propulsion has been available in the proverbial underground bases for at least four decades, they don't need to be that much more advanced than us. This is kind of something that I know Dr. Farrell has written about um, at length, which is our quote-unquote cousins may only be 100 years ahead of us. And that's interesting when it comes to like, well, how morally developed are they then? Because we're trash. <laughs> As people, we are trash morally, right? Um, <laughs> so they might not be that advanced. This whole like, oh, super advanced, blah, blah, blah. Maybe. Maybe only 100 years. If we've got electrogravitics and that's how they move about the galaxy, then they, they don't need, you know. So yeah. that's kind of interesting. Yeah. As to, but in both cases, the technology, and this is why it keeps coming back to the living universe thing, these technologies kind of only work when you realize that materialism is, is wrong. So in whether you want it to be like the Dirac Sea or, or some kind of ether or what have you, the, the sort of, dare I say, secret space program technology works because of a description of physics that is currently not allowed, right? And it's sort of the same thing with the technology. If, if humans have thoughts and if thoughts are real in, in some sense and not just chemical gloop inside a monkey brain, then, then all of a sudden the, the, um, the target that of these entities, according to Valet's hypothesis, makes a lot more sense, right? So that's kind of where I, I situate how we understand the technology and so on. They need not necessarily be particularly advanced now as for the ethics of doing things like you know rape and abduction yeah, yeah. uh that kind of goes to dr farrell's point that maybe they aren't that much more advanced <laughs> than yeah. us, the ones that are doing it but it, it comes back to this happens less often in well let me put it this way if you look horizontally at cultures that do things like the extra dimensional diplomacy we mentioned earlier in the show it doesn't happen as often and it happens when taboos are transgressed. So if people are um, out late um, beyond the campfire or if they stray from 
a, a hunting group, or if they wander onto taboo land without getting the permission of the entities that both are and govern that land, then you start to see stories that look like the abduction and, and unwanted sexual encounters that happen with the classic UFO experience. Mm -hmm. So again, this sort of comes back to we're living in a, in a more crowded universe than most people realize. And not just that, but there are kind of like rules and, and methods of protection and, and things that we used to do. And, and the, the membership is doing a custodianship course at the moment. So we've kind of gone historically through house protections. What even is a house? But then house protections through time and, and the various techniques that would protect from things like witchcraft and, and, and what have you. And that's, again, it puts, quote unquote, Western culture back on the same footing as everyone else on the planet, which is like this, not everything out there is nice. Um, not everything out there has your best interest in heart. Some do, some don't. Like it's just, it's it's like it is a forest, you know. And there are things that we probably aren't doing that could be useful in this. So I met a guy at a wedding a couple of years ago in San Diego, and he was, I think, he was in his late twenties or early thirties. So definitely too old to be having hag attack experiences. He's still having them. So. I said, because um, he lives in Texas, who's over for the wedding, which means there's botanicas available to him to buy, like literally as simple as off-the-shelf house protection kits. And put one of them up and you, it won't happen anymore. And it doesn't. So he did and it doesn't. And it's interesting that, this is kind of in the, in the course, we actually know how to do magic, and in particular, the ones that we're supposed to be doing. Yes, it, it takes some experience and the right kind of tools to do, like the full grimoire stuff. But house protection, you know how to do. That's in your bones as a human. That's something that we have done forever, right? And if it is, quote unquote, just like an alien in a flying saucer that is coming to do this, then why does hanging up? a picture of St. Peter and burning a particular herb and saying these words do something. Exactly. Why? Well, because the universe is alive and, and we're yes, kind of okay. fumbling our way back to those rules. Just had to ask because this is fertile. So many experiencers want concrete steps to take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you the best one for the kind of unwanted entity encounters like that isn't don't learn banishing. Don't wait for them to show up in the room. Clean the house. Do, the, do house protection. And that stops it. Um, and, and that's really interesting because I think that's rules-based. I think what you are telling the universe is that this is a human habitation, that you're not kind of like effectively camping in the woods. Because if you haven't, from a spirit perspective, turned your house into a dwelling for humans, and that's done with magic, that's not done with bricks, you look like fair game. You just look like you're sleeping in the field to them. What do they know, bricks? Yeah. Whereas if you actually make your house a home in, in, a, in a magical sense, and this is literally off the shelf, and I'm not, you don't need to be good at this because the thing about magic is you know it. Um, you just need the, and maybe a show like this helps, but you just need the emotional and psychological permission to validate your own experiences, telephone, telepathy, all that stuff, and say, fucking, this shit is real. Yeah. And not just real, I do it. Like, telephone, telepathy, and whatever. Like, it happens. And then the next step is literally a house blessing kit bought off Etsy or, or from a botanica and literally call me in the morning. Like, that is, 
if you're sick of those kind of encounters, turn your house into a human dwelling. Let the spirit world see it as a place that humans live and watch as they change their behavior because that's real kind of like animism stuff. And you're not being facetious. A house blessing kit off Etsy can put one over the threshold. Yep. Try that and see what happens. Because people want to go to like exorcisms and what do I say when they show up? Yeah, there are kind of like more intense interventions if you need them. But in in most cases, that won't get to the root cause. It's almost like a Western medicine problem, right? The root cause is you, your house isn't a human dwelling as far as the spirit world is concerned because a human dwelling has certain things like that. In the same way, a hermit crab has a shell. Like we, are, we look, we're supposed to look like humans. <laughs> and this is sort of what humans look like. Otherwise, yeah, again, they can move through walls and stuff. It's, they don't think, and this is, so there's a guy and it's amazing stuff. Eduardo Cohn wrote a book called How Forests Think, which definitely changed my life. And he's a Canadian anthropologist. And he spent a lot of time in the Amazon. And he talks about perspectivism, which is coming back to that visible and visible idea. And when he was out with the Runa, they're sort of telling him, if you see a puma, keep, make eye contact and, and keep eye contact. Because if it's looking at you, it's seeing a human. If you look away from it, it sees meat. So... You have an, this is the kind of visible invisible divide. There's a, there's a whole cosmology around eyes and, and visibility that is how people who navigate a really, really crowded universe, like those who live in the Amazon, have developed in order to do that. And, and putting up a house protection shows perspectively that humans are in their dwelling. So from a spirit perspective, they, they actually, they can see your house for the first time ever, ever because otherwise you look like meat. You literally yeah. look like you're just sleeping out in the field. It's so fascinating making your home identifiable as a human dwelling in the spirit world. A lot of people will wonder if this can be reliably extended to prevent unwanted contact from grace. Does it work there as well? Does a different formula come into play? I would honestly say start with that because... There's been a bunch of research of, I know Nick Redfern's done some of it, on basically people praying or making the sign of the cross. And you don't have to be Christian, like, you know, um, replace with whatever sacred symbols you are, are your context, right? It doesn't, yeah. There's not a power of Jesus angle here. But people who have prayed to Jesus or made the sign of the cross, there's plenty of research that that will remove these entities from the room. And it's kind of why I think, Historically, in the 20th century, a lot of people went down the aliens equals demons line. That's because they kind of grew up, you know, in charismatic Christian context in America. And then all of a sudden encounter these data where aliens will flee from the sign of the cross and go, oh, they're demons. It's like, no. <laughs> um, it's more that sanctity is something that human sanctity is a thing that humans do. So again, you, you turn from being meat to being a human to them, right? So again, Try the house blessing kit and do it with the confidence that you know what you're doing. Because believe me, you know what you're doing and, and see what happens. But yes, there are other interventions and, and things like making the sign of the cross have, there are data that indicate that that's a thing that will mitigate it. And you can just do it without having to develop a cosmology as to why that is the case. It doesn't mean you have to start going to church or any of that stuff. It just, it's just magic. It works. Yeah, I think that trips a few people up going, but I'm not Christian. Well, 
The greys probably aren't either. <laughs> that's, that's great. And considering sanctity, I want to go a step further into sanctity versus defilement. Contactees receive messages from non-human entities that humans are destroying the planet, that the manner in which we create food systems generates inestimable suffering, that our systems are defiling the planet. My question is, just as our sanctity functions to protect us, inversely is our biocidic behavior attracting some of what we're experiencing on the negative end? I'm of the uh, camp that it's just gaslighting. So if, if you think of, I remember this from one of Tim Leary's books, in the 70s, when people was like channeling like Seth material type stuff, these aliens said that the Japanese were the most advanced race on earth and you should be more like the Japanese. And it's like, well, that, as the eighties rolled on, you had the sort of Japanese economic miracle and, and everyone was kind of interested like, there were Japanese business books and all that. We all remember American psycho, right? So it just sort of seems like whatever's going on in the world, because if you roll back historically, and this is where Valet's historic data are useful, they always come with the apocalypse. So, they're always urgently telling you that the world is about to end. Now, um, are we not? Are we living in right relation with the more than human world? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. But the kind of urgency that these beings like why? So all this effort you're you're in this spaceship orbiting the Earth here to announce that we aren't living right. I'm like, well, beam down. <laughs> and plant some trees or something. I don't know. Like, mm. uh, it does look like manipulation and gaslighting in, in a real sense. That said, there's plenty of evidence. Dean Radin's quite good for this, that if you are in a more custodial relationship with your local area, uh, and that's doing things like intending, and I do this, I'm in a, I have a small permaculture farm in Southern Tasmania, to intend for and, and effectively pray for your living systems, so plants and so on, allow, like not just that they grow faster and healthier, but the subsequent um, fruits and so on are more nutritionally dense. So the, the, it's not that the message is wrong, which is that we are not living in right relation with the more than human world. That's certainly true. It's just that they, um, the apocalyptic messages predate environmental concerns, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the time it just seems gaslighty. And, and it's really interesting, I think, when you look at something like channeling over the sort of four decades, a bit less, that it was popular in like the 60s, 70s, early 80s context, well, into the 90s even. And I don't mean spiritualism necessarily. I mean, then it was all, it was all very millenarian. And, and what you find with most channel material is announcements of preparing the way uh, announcements of we're almost here, announcements of like, and it's almost like bad sex, right? Like it's, it's never quite getting there. And I think the reason for that is that what people are experiencing is an almost spiritual awakening. So it's, it's like looking down the microscope and seeing your own eye. When people are like, oh, it's almost here. The apocalypse is almost here. You've been selected to prepare the way. All of this stuff is like almost getting to climax and not there. And I think that's a, that's a ritual error rather than something that's in the message. Uh, and, and there's a lot of that with UFO cults. And, and the thing is, like, 
they, they come down and say, you know, you're, you're not living right. You're destroying the planet. I'm like, yeah, you guys have announced your arrival quite a few times. So you're going back to the block universe or, or predictions. You're kind of shit at it, aren't you? Because there's been a whole bunch of times you said you're about to land or that we're about to ascend and it never happens. So why would I listen to you on this? And I think the, the, the messages of like imminent change are a side effect of the ritual rather than something in the message. Gaslighting note is interesting. For instance, if we were to do a behavioral assessment as to how much time and energy has gone into, say, the hybridization program, well, why aren't those resources allocated to prevent that presaged apocalypse or the environmental collapse? Some people on motherships being shown movies of the apocalypse might well wonder, why are you making movies instead of helping us fix it? Would you? If you had a flying saucer? <laughs> you could fix it. If you, if it's like, okay, you, you know, your entire planet is poisoned with heavy metals. I'm like, what's this machine made of? How do we, how did you get here? <laughs> we're like, come on. Um, and, and so that's why it's, you have to not necessarily take it with a grain of salt, but realize that we used to have, and this comes back to like, I'm not, not saying they're demons, right? So in Solomonic magic, and really any system that deals with spirit contact, there are protocols you go through to make sure that the thing that showed up and declared itself as the Archangel Michael or whatever actually is that entity because they lie. So you're dealing with phenomena that either intentionally or just because it's difficult to communicate extra dimensionally lie. <laughs> yeah. and, and in initiated magical systems, there are ways of, getting them to prove that they are who they are, and if not, they can fuck off, right? And, and that we don't have that in, in the kind of experiential world. So instead, we have this sort of somewhat bewildering, as you say, like get taken up into a spaceship for a home video night. You know what? <sighs> <laughs> yeah, and in that spirit, pre-incarnational contracts. Often experiencers will go through being taken, violated, and are told by the entities that the human being made a pre-incarnational contract. Before you were born, you agreed to this, you were one of us, you took up this mission as a starseed. Is that valid justification for what's occurring? If such contracts do exist, what if a person decides to declare them null and void? Start over with a new negotiation. What's your take on those themes? It goes back to the channeling a bit. So it's less helpful modern terms for something true, which is, again, uh, if you look horizontally, we have the notion of lineages and dreamings and, and so on. And we do have, like, again, you'll, you'll have people talk about star ancestors and the fact that amongst people like the Ananu, stars are, amongst other things, the campfires of the ancestors. So the, the idea that we have pre-incarnational entanglements with the more than human world is fine, right? But it's just that the language isn't great at describing it, because it's all very capitalist contractual stuff, right? Isn't great at describing it, and subsequently isn't great at understanding and, and aligning that relationship. So an interesting one never occurred to me when I started and I even called it astral travel at the time, because again, I was a kid, this is going way back to the 
waterfall mistakes era. Uh, and I started doing what I would call journeying now. The sort of journeying guy, I don't, not spirit animal or anything racist like that, but like the principal journeying companion was a green sea turtle. And it has been for this intervening several decades. And it started showing up. I've been diving all over the Pacific and briefly had like a, a rehabilitated pet green sea turtle in, in Fiji and all this kind of stuff. So it wasn't just that. I was kind of vaguely aware that turtles kept showing up <laughs> uh, in my life. And on my last ayahuasca experience or um, ayahuasca weekend, if you will, three or four days at the beginning of this year, I was sort of deep in some ancestral work. And my grandfather used to be part of colonial administration in New Guinea. He's dead now. But I was in spirit journey and I could see myself and my four siblings because we're all divers. Dad's had two marriages, right? So this is the paternal line. And we're all kind of ascending in to the decompression stuff, diving. And I was looking at all five of us doing this. And behind was this enormous, giant, spectral green sea turtle. Enormous, right? Um, Like dwarfing us. It could swallow us whole. And I started talking to it and it said, because my grandfather, while he was in New Guinea, there was a hurricane. And because he was in colonial administration, he was sort of in charge of the response. And he kind of acted fairly quickly and saved a couple of hundred lives. And there are actually streets in Port Moresby that are still named after him. So I'm not, this isn't a Mm pro-Empire comment. It's just that that was his job and he did it reasonably well and, and saved a couple of hundred lives in this incident. And Turtle told me that it was because of this action, you, like his descendants are now part of Turtle Clan. So it's not just that, it's just that none of my other siblings do journeying. I do. And that's where that came from. So Turtle was waiting for me when I started doing it. And, and this is, a, I think, a healthier way of thinking with things like contracts. You absolutely do have entanglements because you don't die. <laughs> like you just, like, so of course you have pre-incarnational and, and will have post-incarnational contacts. But I, so things like that can happen, right? And I'm like, that, that has changed how Turtle and I do journeying together, but it just really, it was a revelation for me that it was, I have, I have turtle lineage. I'm part of turtle clan because of something my grandfather did, but it's not just me. It's everyone down his line. So my brothers both have kids now and they're in turtle clan too. So that we used to have language for that. <laughs> we don't have language for it. And so it takes a weirdo like me to go and do ayahuasca and kind of bring that information back and, and tell my siblings they're part of Turtle Clan. So that's, I would argue, a healthy, uh, no, healthy version of when people have less consensual spirit contact that they are told is in some sense because of pre-incarnational arrangements. And again, it's just because we're not good at magic and we're not living in like a, we're not operating with the awareness that the universe is alive. That feels so much better. When you hear pre-incarnational contract, you feel like you're in litigation. You don't even know with whom. But finding one's clan genealogically feels beautiful. Okay, so last question. There was a guest on your podcast who led to some wonderful arguments among my circle of friends. And it pertained to the Mars nuclear event, a particular isotope signature on Mars. For those unfamiliar, perhaps you could frame it briefly. And I also just wonder if there's been any update on that topic. I actually asked Alex about that last year, and there hasn't, because um, he's more in contact with Dr. John Brandenburg, who wrote a book about this, several books. And he, and it's not wrong, it just needs an explanation that there is essentially a trace amount 
there is a weapons signature, an isotope that could only happen from a weaponized perspective in trace amounts in the Martian atmosphere, right? And so based on the half-life of this, and this has been known since, at least according to Brandenburg, the late 70s and Voyager missions, right? So how that got there, and he's a plasma physicist, so he actually knows how the sun works because everyone's kind of like, well, obviously it's some sort of radiation impact from the sun or other things. And he's like, yeah, it could be, but he's still waiting for people to have a credible counter explanation. It's, it's not like he's, you know, he, he finds the idea horrifying because um, he's quite Christian. I think that that gets people a bit discombobulated, but yeah, so there's a, there's a weapon signature that makes it look like there was not just nuclear weapons exploded on Mars, but between 350, half a million half a billion years ago, 350 to 500 million years ago. It's not just that, it's that the, the nature of the radiation shows that it was airburst bombs. So it wasn't an accident, it was bombed from orbit because you, you, there's way more damage inflicted when you detonate a nuclear device in the air rather than have it explode when you hit the ground. And there appears to be one or two of them that had happened. And I find that coming back to what sometimes it's aliens, right? Rather than fairies and Bigfoots and whatever. Mars, for me, is the winner um, for that because it's not just so dr brandenburg was involved with all the kind of like 80s and 90s mars nerds like richard hoagland and whatever they're finding the face on mars and doing all that kind of work and there have been a number of times in my career where i've encountered people and and one of the well this wasn't really career but it was when i was in london it was paul lafole who was an amazing artist and has been had his whole life was about using art you know him yeah we are planning to do a segment on him coming up and maybe we'll just put it in the end of this episode so like he when he was in london i went and saw him talk and i chatted to him afterwards and he just is open about the fact that look i know people at nasa they know there's stuff on mars they've known that since the 70s and it's just not even a question for him anymore it's like and it, I, that's happened to me a couple of times with people who would be in the know. And one of them was another senior person at Google who were like, yeah, there's stuff on Mars. That's been known, right? So yeah. it, may, it might not be the exact Cydonia city that is laid out according to Hoagland's designs, but NASA and the military and intelligence agencies are operating on the assumption that there is stuff on Mars because they've seen it. And, and one of the things that's very interesting about that is Dr. Brandenburg's research because it's open and shut. It's like, at the moment, it's a weapon signature. And, it's, and you add that to the fact that there are ruined structures on Mars and you have a story of possibly a very dangerous corner of the cosmos that we live in, especially as if you think about, and I, I'm kind of into this idea that the asteroid belt is a destroyed planet and all the rest of it. But I, I'm, very, I'm more open to that idea now that I've done the diligence on Dr. Brandenburg's work and so on. But like, as I said, in, in my, I, this has happened to me a few times. I've had a weird life where people will tell you things and some weird people I don't really, this is unfair saying, I don't like Michael Sala, but I kind of don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I've had people, I've been at conferences, telecoms conferences, because I was working in, in B2B. Like, so I was working in telecoms media rather than telecom, right? So for a business magazine covering the industry. And I've been at conferences where people will say things like, They've been digging to lay stuff like undersea cables or and one of them was because it was an Africa telecoms conference, finding things that are like a kilometer down that look like mines, giant rectangular mines and mine shafts and so on. They're a kilometer down. And so it kind of gets into that Michael Sala 
Zechariah Sitchin thing. Like they shouldn't, they shouldn't be there. And it's always, it's really interesting to me. Like you, if you have a corporate job and it doesn't even necessarily matter what sector, right? Like I, I wasn't in telecoms. I was in media, but it was covering telecoms. And these are the things that get said at conferences, you know, and about 1130 at night, the drinks have been out at the end of the day. And you find out stuff like that. And I found out a couple of things like that with Mars. And as far as I'm concerned, there are ruins on Mars and there is a, there's an isotope in the atmosphere that is the side effect of nuclear detonations. And that's, that's just what the evidence is. I'm very open to that not being right, right? So Xenon-129 is in the Martian atmosphere. <laughs> oh. And, um, you know, it's weird. I, and it's the Pentagon. So when he wrote the book, when Brandenburg wrote the book, because he did used to have clearance when he was working for JPL and whatever, he sent it to the Pentagon and, and other people because he had people who thought were his friends who were kind of handlers and whatever. But he essentially got the okay to publish the book. So it still folds into that weird, is this a real thing being used as disinfo? And I think that's what it is. But yes, the, the Mars thing is, is fascinating to me, especially as, yes, it's red, right? But like, why is it universally the war planet? How do we remember? That? Is this is kind of like a remote viewing thing? Do we just intuitively know humans? Do we know that that's a place where war stuff happened. And, and there are other war planets in the sense that for the Maya, and they would only go to war under particular Venusian configurations. But by and large, we've always associated with Mars with war. And as far as anyone knows, it's the only planet that's been bombed from orbit. And Elon Musk wants to put a million people there, <laughs> populate it. <laughs> Couple that with his fabulous ignorance and disinterest in learning anything regarding our anomalous human past or present. So that's, that's another example, right? I used to work for Yelp. And so he's, Yelp is founded by PayPal Mafia. So the guys, I only met them once and they were awful. But um, the Yelp founders are friends of his from PayPal days. And we got another one. We were chatting about it. And he basically had people, the proverbial person sidled up to him saying, you might see some shit up there in reference to building out SpaceX and whatever. And he said, we'd appreciate it if you kept that quiet. He doesn't care. <laughs> it's so bizarre. It, I know. Yeah. That's, again, these are the things you hear. Whatever that's worth, that's, that's hearsay. But it seems like he doesn't care that aliens are a thing. <laughs> Willfully ignorant. Yeah. Luxuriating in oblivion. He's like, you know, he's a billionaire. He wants to make more money. I get the kind of capitalist arrogance of it right like to be that person in in the history of mankind that sort of gets everyone i mean it's probably not going to work but like i would be very interested in the idea that even as just you're doing iss deliveries you're seeing little things buzzing around up there that seems kind of interesting in, in the philosophical sense to me but as far as i was told anyway he doesn't care. <laughs> it's more interesting to him to be some sort of, I don't know, transhumanist Noah, something like that. Before we part, can you just give us a minute on your community, the long-term study courses you offer, where people can find it, and also your work? Um, sure. So obviously the blog and the show and all the most of the stuff is just available at runesoup.com. Uh, if you would like to be a premium member, we do a whole bunch of different things. Um, 
this is $10 a month and each quarter we do a different course that the premium members vote on. So we've done a tarot one and a journeying one and all this kind of stuff. But there's also different methods of engagement in there. We do intention groups and prayer groups and all the rest of it. So you can kind of engage at whatever level you're interested in at a, at a local or, or whatever um, basis for people who actually do the stuff um, rather than talk about it. But um, there's also a whole bunch of people who actually just subscribe to support the show and, and what have you. So there's, there's that with it as well. But yeah, runesoup.com. And if you like what you see, there's, there's more. For more on Gordon White, check the show notes. Paul Laffley. The artist Gordon makes reference to earlier in this episode. Laffley was a painter, architect, author, and experiencer. While still a child, Laffley vowed to become an architect so that he could design flying saucers, although he didn't become a registered architect until he was 50 years of age. He painted on large canvases, and the majority of his visual works combined words and imagery to depict a spiritual architecture which delved mysteries such as dimensionality, hacking the temporal stream, integrating and synthesizing conceptual tendrils of important philosophical figures down through the millennia, and theories about the cosmic origins of humanity. According to Laffoli, quote, In preparation for a major oral surgery, I was subjected to a routine CAT scan of my head. As a result, a miniature metallic-like implant was discovered in my brain near the pineal gland. A local chapter of MUFON declared it to be a nanotechnological laboratory capable of accelerating or retarding my brain activity. I have come to believe that the implant is extraterrestrial in origin and is the main motivation of my ideas and theories." End quote. I for one would love to read that MUFON report and speak to the investigators. Such a statement calls to mind many artistic figures who feel their implants figure critically in their creative work, from Whitley Strieber to Kate Torvaldson, who appeared on episodes 16 and 17 of Aliens and Artists. Laughably passed in 2015. For more information, check the show notes. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one work with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions focus on transpersonal hypnotherapy, creativity as a spiritual path, and anomalous experience. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session, or just check the show notes. And The Experiencer Group, a private membership site for those who've encountered anomalous phenomena, including near-death precognition, contact with non-human entities, and much more. The Experiencer Group offers private support groups, exclusive content, and live events. Check the show notes to become a member and get one month free. What if you could join OnlyFans right now and see naked pictures of your favorite artist? I know, right? Nudity is naughty. How much would you be willing to pay for that? Wait! What if I told you it wasn't even your favorite artist, maybe just a podcaster you're vaguely aware of? Well, what would you pay now for that hot, salacious pod bod? Hold on! What if instead of naked nubile nymphs on an OnlyFans page, this was a Patreon page? 
with an aging grandiloquent interlocutor whose pleonastic palaver waxed without wane. What would you pay then? Well, double it. And then walk away, because I decline your slender, slanderous gesture. Wait. Okay. Okay, I'll take it. But only because of the reasons. Patreon. It's like OnlyFans without the nudes if it ran an outhouse on Lake Malax. Glass of a frozen lake. 